we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. We're up to episode 88. It's the 22nd of March, 2017. It's the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Scott, you're back from overseas. Welcome back. I am back, back. here. Thank you very much. Yeah, I had a great trip. Good to yeah, see you. Yeah. Good to see you. So, um, Scott, we've got plenty on the agenda tonight. And one that wasn't initially on the agenda, but we're going to throw it at the, at the beginning anyway, is renewed discussion over Section 18C, because the Liberal yeah. government uh, has come out and said that, uh, well, dear listener, brief refresher. Section 18C um, prohibits you making a statement which would insult, offend, humiliate or intimidate somebody based on a number of factors. And they're going to get rid of insult, offend and humiliate and replace with harass. That's the plan. Scott, we've been calling for this for a while. We've been calling this for this for a while. Um, Replacing it with harass, I think, probably makes sense. Although I did hear David Marr uh, on one of the podcasts I listened to, mm. he said that they shouldn't remove humiliate, mm. and uh, I'm still not convinced that you don't need to remove humiliate. Uh, but he did say that he he did have a very valid reason for it. Um, mm-hmm. He did actually he did put it into a he did put it into an example. He said, you know, can you imagine? Can you imagine? the Prime Minister going into the Jewish Council and saying that we're going to allow people to humiliate Jews. And, yeah, it made sense. Well, we humiliate Irish people all the time. Exactly. We humiliate Mm. red-headed people with freckles. I mean, Mm. just because you shouldn't do something doesn't mean you should be prosecuted for doing it. And that is exactly what I came down on. At the end of it all, I came down and I thought to myself, no... You've still got to. You've still got to. You've still got to have that situation that um, enables people to say whatever the hell they want to without being prosecuted for it. Mm. You know, Once and again, uh, some people can be very easily humiliated. Is exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's very easy to say, "Oh, you've humiliated me with that statement." Well, I mean, that, that's it. I mean, like if you remove all the other stuff that comes down to it, then you're going to be left with one one word: humiliate. Mm. You have someone turning and saying, "You humiliated me," and. I do think that would be wrong. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, anyway, that was where I came out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm happy to see insult, offend, humiliate gone. And I think mm. leave intimidate in. That's okay. Um, but I'm not so sure about harass because, you know, to me, harassment harassment, can be fairly pesky. Harassment is a long, it's built up over time though, isn't it? We have laws called nuisance that if you if you commit a public or a private nuisance, you know things like playing your music too loud at night and stuff like that. You know that, mm. that's already covered under public nuisance laws. I just harass to me um, could involve some fairly minor things. So you know, yeah. So I'd be happy with just intimidate or sort of anything that incites violence. To mm. me, that's all we need to cover. So interesting, Scott, is uh, they're going to take it to the Senate first rather than the House of Reps. Yeah, well, they're... Uh... And and on the basis that they know they're going to get defeated and they'll just... Well, if it, if, it gets defe- if it gets defeated in the Senate, then they'll just knock it on the head, yeah. Yes, but then Malcolm Turnbull can say to his right wing, well, I gave it a go. I gave it a go, yes. And then he can also say to the public, well, we didn't change anything. So mm. that's kind of the theory as to why mm. he's done that. Mm. Mm. I've heard a few times our friend James Patterson, who's yeah. been on uh, different programs, he speaks well on this issue. Like, I he does speak very well on it, yeah. He, right he wing, speaks very well. You know, he's a right-wing nutter, but he uh, he does speak exceptionally well. On this yeah. issue, we are together as one, I yeah, think. Exactly. And, yeah, exactly. You know, the, the line that's often trotted out is, why do you want to amend this section? I mean, 
who is it that you want to insult? What is it that you want to say? And a lot of people in this position just remain, oh, you know, talk, sort of divert off. But James yeah. Patterson says, well, I'd like to be a QUT student who writes that, you know, segregation to uh, in the computer room isn't appropriate, you know. Mm, and so exactly. he, he makes a very good point on, on some things, James Patterson, on this. So, uh, so on this issue, we're of like mind, I think. Mm. Mm. Um, it's interesting, Scott. I have looked... I've had the misfortune to look at some ABC and SBS Facebook um, posts about this because there's that comedian, Benjamin Law, who came out making some comments about this and posting it, any of Law, mm. okay. uh, posting it online. And, yeah. and, then, and the number of people who have come out in defence of Section 18C in the comments sections of the ABC and... SBS Facebook pages, it's frightening the arguments that they come up with and the nonsense that's sprouted and the and the claims of racism that are made against anybody who bobs their head up and says that they want 18C change and the allegations of racist and bigot that come in. Yeah. So, um, it really is the latest sort of catch-all, isn't it? Like you, you stand up and say that I'm, I'm supporting of changing 18C and immediately the finger gets pointed and told, you're a racist, you're a bigot. You know, it's, it really is ridiculous. I, I'm, I'm thinking at some stage of an episode where it might be torturous to do, but to just go to one of these comment threads and just run through the sorts of things that are said, <laughs> it's just disheartening sometimes when you, think, uh, when you think of the arguments that are made and how they're so quick to to denigrate other people as racist. And, and if you're a white fella, you can't talk about the subject. And mm. it gets very ugly very quickly. And it's it does, yeah. very nonsensical and illogical as well. So mm. so anyway, that's 18C. There'll be a bit of noise about that perhaps. And then the Senate will reject it and then it'll all die away and Malcolm Turnbull will have appeased uh, one section of his party, perhaps. Well, we'll see whether or not it does get rejected by the Senate because if Labor and the Greens vote ad, vote against it, you're then going to get virtually the entire crossbench on your side. Mm. Now, of those crossbenchers, most of them appear to be supportive of ADNC being removed. So mm. it really Nick, wouldn't Nick surprise... Nick Xenophon seems like... Nick Xenophon isn't, no, so I apologise. Yeah, Nick Xenophon, yeah, he could actually knock it on the head, yeah. Mm. So we'll see. Um, yeah, so that's 18C. Mm. Uh, Scott, um, you were overseas recently, and I'm going to assume you didn't go to Pakistan. No, I didn't go to Pakistan, no. <laughs> I went to Malaysia. And, right. Uh, well, 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 Pakistan. Well, okay, my, 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 my initial reaction to Malaysia was when I first arrived there, there was a woman in the... Um, Shadow, was it? No, the um. Oh God! Oh, no, she wasn't in a niqab, or a, no, she wasn't a niqab. She was just 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 in a hijab. Yeah, okay. just in a hijab, and she okay. was she was dressed up. She was a customs enforcement person, that sort of stuff, and she was just all dolled up in that sort of stuff. Yes. And I thought to myself, oh, okay, yeah, I'm in a Muslim majority country now, and that sort of thing. I've just got to accept it. Yes. And then I went around the corner, and they were everywhere. You know, right. Um, right. and what really surprised me was when I went into the airport. And I landed and that sort of stuff. I looked around and I thought there were three Saudi Arabian jets that were there. Right. And I said, well, wh why do all the Saudis come here and that sort of stuff? And they said, oh, they come here for their honeymoons. Because yeah. it's a Muslim majority country and that sort of stuff. So, yeah, okay. Yeah. And what I was told was by a friend of mine who is over there working. Mm. She said that um, it's 60% of the population are Malay and that's where the Muslim part comes in. Right. So you do have a lot of women in the hijab. Mm -hmm. The niqab is not is not something that the locals wear. That's something that's imported. That's what the Saudis wear while they're over there on the honeymoon. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that was it. Um, 
you know, there was all sorts of... Anyway, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, but uh, would I want to go back there again? Yeah, I'll go back there again, but wouldn't want to live there. <laughs> well, it's good to know that your name wasn't on some sort of list. No, it wasn't, any, it wasn't any for. sort of list or anything like that. So I was able to come, yeah, exactly. sound and, and bells didn't sound when you walked through the door, so that's comforting. Exactly, yeah. Mm. It is comforting to know, but uh, no, I didn't go to Pakistan and I've mm. got no intention of going to Pakistan. Well, they're back in the news, our friends in Pakistan, because ah. uh, they're not happy with the amount of blasphemy on Facebook. And not only blasphemy on Facebook in Pakistan, but just blasphemy on Facebook everywhere. So they have contacted the powers that be at Facebook um, saying that they want names and details of everyone committing blasphemy on Facebook so that the ones who are at least Pakistani, no matter where they are on the planet at the time, they want to be able to deal with. This is frightening, Scott, if you're a blaspheming Pakistani. It is very frightening because blasphemy, I always thought, was one of those laws that was left on the books because it was just there. Mm. And it was used as a last resort and that sort of stuff. But when you get a story like this, you find out that a government is actually out to try and stop it completely. Then you realise that it's not just a law that's on the books for a catch-all or anything like that. It is it is used to actually stop people saying what they want to say, which mm. is really quite frightening. Yeah. Mm. So anyway, Facebook has agreed to meet with them. Now, one would hope that that's to meet with them and to say, no, guys, we can't do this, and just exactly. doing it in the most diplomatic fashion. One would hope. So strange things hope, have happened, yeah. though. Stranger yeah. things have happened. So, uh, so we'll see. But, you know, as part of that, Scott, in, uh, in the, well, the BBC's Asian Network, uh, on its Twitter account asked its followers what is the right punishment for blasphemy and this just well and this was done by a muslim activist shazia awan who uh, seemingly assumed that blasphemy should be punished in britain and was asking people what would be the right punishment and as you can imagine i would have hoped that the response was none well it was uproar <laughs> from people saying yeah what the hell is the BBC doing asking this question in the first yeah, place? exactly. You know, this is the problem. There's, there's this desire to show both sides of, of an argument, but at some point you just got to stop and say, hang on a minute, we don't have to show yeah. the other side of this argument. You don't have to show the other side of the argument. That is exactly right. You know, they really should have shut it down. Mm. So, um, so there you go. You can be listening to it or you can be on the Twitter following BBC Asian Network and be asked what you think is the right punishment for blasphemy. Uh, as part of that article, they said that since 1990, 62 people accused of blasphemy in Pakistan have been murdered before their trials ended. Um, and BBC apologised for the tweet. So that's that. Are you on Twitter, Scott? I have started to try and understand it and that sort of stuff, but I'm not actually on it. So I do have to try and get my head around it, but yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't interest me in the least. I just, I don't understand Twitter. I can understand most social media stuff, but Twitter, I think it would be so time consuming for the people who are on it. Um, mm. and, and it must just descend into outrage versus outrage so often so i'm going to stay off twitter i think well that is i think you know it's probably a wise thing to stay off but it is um it is one of those things that does seem to crop up all the time mm. yeah um oh dear listener if there's somebody out there who'd like to run the iron fist velvet glove twitter account which we don't even have um <laughs> If you want to volunteer and you're like-minded, we'll give you a pretty free reign. So you know the idea of what we would tweet. So if, if, if anyone else there is up for it, a social media manager would be great, actually. Exactly, yes. Yeah. yes. So um, feel free. Um, Scott, while you were away, I went to the meeting of the Queensland Parents for Secular State Schools. Yep. And... You've gone soft. Are you still there? Oh, come I'm close still to here, mind. yeah. Yeah. Your, your, your voice has gone softer for some reason. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, what a great bunch doing good things in Queensland. Uh, there's a similar group called Firis in Victoria who achieved what seems the impossible of having the, 
religious instruction classes removed. And mm. Ferris has got a branch in New South Wales who are trying to do the same thing, get these religious instruction classes out of our state schools. And they've got a brochure which they've prepared and they will mail it out to you if you're in New South Wales and you want to do some letterbox dropping for them. So, dear listener, if you're in New South Wales, uh, a brochure which basically explains to parents what's their what their rights are in relation to religious instruction and uh, highlighting um, various issues about it. And it would be great if they get distributed. It would be great if Queensland Parents for Secular State Schools or somebody does something similar in Queensland. Scott, mm. I think I think that's what is, is required, is sort of direct communication to parents via a leaflet drop or something like that. I think so, yeah. It, it's, it really would help, but it's apparently not going to happen. So anyway. It's just that people don't understand what's going on. They assume the kids are getting some sort of general religious education and being told, you know... Theory of religion when they're actually yeah. being bashed over the head with Bible stories about Noah and Abraham and told that it's mm. all true. So, mm. um, so yeah, so uh, we'll see what develops there. Also, dear listener, I think it's like I've made this offer to Queensland Parents for Secular State Schools, and it might happen. I reckon it'd be great to hear people's stories about what's happened to their kids or themselves in religious instruction classes and if you have an experience a little story where perhaps your kid was in the class when shouldn't have been or was uh, thrown out onto a veranda and told to twiddle his or her thumbs for half an hour while the class went on or as what happened to a mate of mine his kid was abused for not attending the religious instruction class Mm. by, by a passing parent so if you've you know if you've got a war story of some sort, I'd love to record a little five or ten minute interview audio that we could cobble together and um, let people know. So contact us via the website if you're in that position. Mm. What do you, what do you, oh, you went to a Catholic. You went to a a, a religious. I was a non-denominational Christian school, was the secondary school, and the primary school was an Anglican school. Right. So you would have had a period of religion of some sort. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, dear listener, these things are not aimed at that, obviously. Private schools can unfortunately do what they like, but um, that's a battle for another day. Let's start (laughs) with state schools. Scott... um, Got this one uh, from my son, actually. Uh, a New Zealand river. Did I tell you? Did I send you this one? You did send it to me, and I couldn't understand it. <laughs> <laughs> How a river can be granted the same legal rights as a human being? Mm, the, the In a world first, mm. New Zealand river has been granted the same legal rights as a human being. Local local Maori tribe of the Wanganui in the North Island has fought for the recognition of the river, of their river, the third largest in New Zealand as an ancestor for 140 years. Mm. Uh, it, it's it beggars belief <laughs> that they would do that. I mean, I know why they've done it, because they had to try and give it some sort of recognition and that sort of thing, but... that's that's. I thought that's why we had environmental laws. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I mean, it's an inanimate object. It, it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a river, for God's sake. It, it's not got any personality or anything like that. It's just a river. Scott, you're approaching yeah. this from the position of a privileged white man. <laughs> oh, okay, right. Okay, no so culture. how could you do possibly, tell me? Yeah. How could you possibly understand this? You, you couldn't, well, that's true. Yeah, you've got no I, standing. You're deplatformed. You couldn't yeah, even comment on this. You're in no position to. So the new status of the river means if somebody abused or harmed it, the law now sees no differentiation between harming the tribe or harming the river because they are one and the same. Just so unnecessary. You can protect all you need to protect with a river by appropriate... Environmental River, river legislation. Exactly, yeah. Mm. 
Interesting as part of this, Scott, financial redress of $80 million New Zealand is included in the settlement, as well as an additional $1 million New Zealand contribution towards establishing the legal framework for the river. So a hefty compensation. So presumably the river is going to walk down to the bank and open an account. So, well, they're 80 million. The so they're 80 million. Banks. Boom, boom, tish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does have two banks, but <laughs> presumably that 80 million is going to end up in the bank accounts of the Wanganui people, is it? Uh, a brother or sister of the river itself. So that's all good. For goodness sake, why can't we just call it a river and acknowledge that it needs protection and just. You protect it. You, you protect it under the environmental laws, like we've said. Hmm. Okay, so that's crazy number one. But if you th- now, Scott, uh, you know, also in the last couple of weeks, you might have missed um, basketballers in the NBA are, are just going crazy. So Kyrie Irving claimed that the Earth is flat. Yeah, I did hear that on a podcast that he'd claimed it was flat and I thought to myself, I must look into that and then didn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> LeBron yeah, James came out and said, oh, if Kyring says it's, you know, if he says it's flat, well, you know, it's legitimate, a very postmodernist view. Then there was another guy whose name I can't recall who said, well, I'd have to do more research on the matter, but I could be persuaded. So he was an NBA player as well. But now... It's just how stupid are these people, you know? Have you heard of Shaquille O'Neal? I have heard the name. I couldn't think what he's attached to, though. Well, he's retired now, I think. But he was was a a big basketball player in more ways than one. And uh, he's now a commentator and celebrity. And he's come out and said that he believes the earth is flat. It's... And... uh, Here's a bit of a summary of his back-and-forth dialogue with somebody over a podcast where this is Shaquille O'Neal says, It's true, the Earth is flat. The Earth is flat. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Listen, there are three ways to manipulate the mind. What you read, what you see, and what you hear. In school, first thing they teach us is, Oh, Columbus discovered America. But when he got there, there were some fair-skinned people with the long head smoking on the peace pipes. So what does that tell you? Columbus didn't discover America. So listen... I drive from coast to coast, and this earth is flat to me. I'm just saying, I drive from Florida to California all the time, and it's flat to me. I do not go up and down at a 360-degree angle and all that stuff about gravity. Have you looked outside Atlanta lately and seen all those buildings? You mean to tell me that China is under us? China isn't under us. It's not. The world is flat. (laughs) These are the ravings. Of Shaquille O'Neal, who seriously believes that the Earth is flat and there's a conspiracy to the contrary. It's mind-boggling, Scott. <laughs> there's I'm speechless. I am speechless because, I mean, that guy has just clearly shown his ignorance of the whole thing. Mm. You know, it, it's... I mean, at least... At least with some conspiracy theories, you can sit back and you can listen to it and you think to yourself, yeah, that makes sense. But the earth being flat makes no sense at all. Mm. So a river being a person and the earth is flat. And dear listener, it's all funny until somebody gets hurt. (laughs) 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 And somebody is getting hurt and it's you and me and everybody else, according to a theory that I'm just about to give you. So bear with me on this one. So, is this one of your theories? Uh, well, this is, uh, you know, uh, this is a theory I'm adopting. Um, right. This okay. is from an article which I had more towards the end of the running sheet, Scott, but we're bringing it forward, is the one mm-hmm. called, uh, titled, It's Not All Relative. Uh, yes, I uh, only just skimmed that. I didn't yes. get to read it in detail. Yep. By Alan J. Levin, Levinovitz. Yep. And h- here is the argument that he's making is... Well, he, he teaches or he has taught a, a, an upper level course on religion and medicine. And he would often ask students to pronounce on the veracity of beliefs about human physiology and the origin of sickness. And um, he'd be looking at sort of 
less civilised cultures, should we say, who have strange beliefs. Now, in this article, he uses the word humours, but I think it's a misprint. It must be referring to the humerus, the bone between your shoulder and your elbow. I would have thought so, yeah. The plural Mm. being humeri. So I'll use this and I'll say, he asked the students, do we have four humeri? Are chakras real? Is illness caused by demonic possession? Um, These questions come in the context of studying different cultures' healing traditions, from wholesale medicine in West Africa to traditional Chinese medicine. And he makes the point that when he's asking his students, you know, is there anything worthwhile in this stuff? The students are very wary of judging cultural practices that aren't their own. And they'll often say, uh, they'll soften their answer. It says, um, for me, this or for them, that. So for me, it's not true we have, that we have four humori, but for them, it is. And he says... That position, however well-intentioned, is perilously similar to the one now being weaponised by dark political forces. Uh, But stay with me on this, listener. I'm going to tie all this in together with the river person and the Shaquille O'Neal story. It'll it'll all make sense. (laughs) You've got Newt Gingrich asserting in a television interview that violent crime was up. Confronted by statistics to the contrary, he appealed to populist viewpoints. The average American, I will bet to you this morning, does not think that crime is down, does not think that we are safer, people feel more threatened. As a political candidate, I'll go with what people feel. So he's saying, well, it doesn't matter what the stats are, what do people think? And Bill O'Reilly questioned... President Trump on his claim that 3 million illegal aliens voted in the election and O'Reilly asked for data and the President replied, many people have come out and said I'm right. And um, uh, what he's, uh, what the article goes on to say is that when we are reticent to question uh, more primitive cultures about the scientific veracity of their claims about medicine what we are doing is we're uh, we're setting up a system where it's okay to question science like we're saying for some people it is okay and that as western um, elitists we shouldn't be forcing our our western civilization view on other people and what that does is that assists the whole sort of fake news um, scenario that we're looking at at the moment because um, what you've got um, is people like Donald Trump saying, well, you don't have to listen to these elitists with their expert views on climate change or other matters. You can have your own view, which is kind Mm. of what people are saying if you're going to say to the Maori people, of course a river's a person, you can have, well, I don't think a river is a person, but you can have your own view if that's the case. Or Shaquille O'Neal, you know, I don't, the earth you, is know, flat. you can yeah. think the earth is flat, I don't, but you can have your own view. Then we can't be surprised when an anti-vaccinator says, well, experts can have their own view, but I'll have my view, because mm. we've set up a scenario where we're actually delegitimised the importance of being factually correct exactly yeah so i quite liked the theme of the article um so where we're trying to be respectful of these groups because it seems nasty to say don't be so bloody stupid a river is not a person um that actually sets up a situation for us later on that people no longer respect what is objectively true because Mm. we sweep it under the rug when we feel it's necessary for people we don't want to offend. Mm. Mm. So, um, so yes, so the West is wrong for criticising Chinese medicine or Maori River people. The West cannot force its standard of truth on the less powerful, so objective truth is devalued so that people can say, well, I don't trust Western science when it comes to vaccinations. Hence why, Scott... While it might seem mean of us to poo-poo the idea of 
a river being a person, and perhaps not so mean to poo-poo Shaquille O'Neal about the Earth being flat, <laughs> we're performing a vital function in society where we're maintaining the value of objective truth. We are, yes. We, we are maintaining the value of objective truth, yeah. It's... Yeah, it's crazy. Anyway, so... Scott, um, I, I don't do it often enough. We've got some uh, patrons who support us. And yep. uh, so I'd like to say thanks to Sean, Elsa, Alex, Al, Janelle, and a new patron, Craig. Thank you very much. We appreciate what you do. And um, if you've got any special requests as a patron that you'd like us to talk about, please contact us. And... Um, I'm meeting up with Right Wing Tony in a couple of weeks. We've, um, we'll be spending a bit of time <laughs> together, and I've warned him that there's a huge give you another podcast for him. <laughs> so we're working out a topic to talk about. So if you really want to hear from Right Wing Tony about a particular topic, contact us. And if you're a patron, then we will do our utmost to comply it's, with whatever we, you ask we, for. We will be better backwards for our patrons. Yeah. Yes. So. Um, so please, uh, yes, thank you for that. So thank you to those patrons. Uh, Scott, I didn't mention this one, but we have previously talked about the gay panic defence in Queensland legislation where uh, somebody charged with murder could have that downgraded to manslaughter by mm. saying that I was, a, you know, in the case of a man, I was approached by a gay man who threatened me with gay sex and that provoked me into killing him and that would downgrade the charge from murder to manslaughter from from murder to manslaughter so Mm. the gay panic defence it was called and the Queensland Parliament has just passed an amendment to that section so that that doesn't apply kind of Scott, this is if you just read and we've talked about this and I've never really I don't think I actually looked at the legislation properly, but yeah. the legislation was actually gender neutral. So it, it said nothing in the legislation about gay or homosexual relationships at all. Does that surprise you? It, it Not really, because you've got... <sighs> It, it simply was... It's an overall section that deals yeah. with, with provocation and circumstances where if you've been provoked, then there could be a downgrade in the charge. And a judge uh, read that as being, well, provoked by an unwanted sexual advance could be provocation. So he didn't restrict it to just gay provocation. In theory, if a woman had been subjected to an unwanted sexual advance from a man and had a gun and shot him, him. that could then um, allow the the charge to be downgraded. So so what they've done is twiddled with the words a bit to make it only in the most exceptional of circumstances. Um, Well, let me just see here. I won't go into the detail, but fiddle with the words. It's still gender neutral, but the defence that used to be there seems like it would have to be incredible sexual advance that would be made in order to uh, now benefit from the provocation defence, and it's still open to men or women. So there's a change in the law, but it's interesting that when you read it, you think the legislation must have referred to gay people specifically, but no, it didn't. So... So that's one would have thought it. One would have thought it would have done in the day, mm. referred to gay defences, but uh, no, no. Not at all. So, okay. Hmm. Scott, um, in Europe, there was a case in relation yeah. to the wearing of religious garments, and of course, typically we're thinking about the hijab. Yep. Um, you, I gave you that one. You did give me that one, yes. Do you want to and kick off on that? 
Because G4S internal rule treats it as all visible religious or political expressions in the same way, rather than singling out a hijab or any other particular religious symbol, the European Court of Justice advised that it is not discriminatory and does not result in a difference of treatment for Muslim employees who choose to wear the hijab. Hmm. Um, I remember reading this case, a reading of this case uh, a little while ago when I think the court in belgium ruled against the employer i couldn't recall that anyway mm-hmm. and they had had ruled against the employers for um and said that they were discriminatory and that sort of stuff then it's gone to the european court of justice and the whole thing's been turned on its head because it was you know it, like it said you know internal rule treats all visible religious or political expressions in the same way so presumably you can't wear a crucifix mm. So if you the can't com- wear a skull cap, you know that sort of mm. thing. So if the, com- so if the company com- has a has a rule that says no religious garments at all, yeah, uh, you can make people not wear a hijab. Mm. Mm. Um, has to be underpinned by a legitimate aim, um, which is a bit nebulous, and simply because a customer demands it has been said to be not a legitimate um, aim, but. Uh, seems like that won't be a problem for employers to say that uh, absolutely no religious garments at all of any description and that would then stop people from wearing the hijab in the workplace. Exactly. Mm. You know, I imagine that also goes through to um, the Sikhs and that sort of stuff. They'd Mm. have to cut their hair and that sort of thing rather than have it all wrapped up. Yeah, Yeah, they'd have a turban, correct. Um, Scott... Uh, well, our Prime Minister recently visited Jakarta. Uh, Steve Chiobo recently visited um, Jakarta as well. Uh, I'm sure they had uh, half a dozen sort of helpers with them and miners with them, but that would mm. pale into insignificance with the recent <laughs> visit. <laughs> By King Salmon. 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 Salmon of Saudi Arabia. Yep. He wound up a 12-day visit to Indonesia with no less than a (laughs) 1,000-man delegation. I mean, they must have booked out two hotels for just his delegation. Just just for his limousine drivers, probably. Well, his limousine drivers, yeah. I mean, it's... mm. It was ridiculous, wasn't it? It's frightening, Scott, is what it is. Well, a thousand people. And, you know, there was also, uh, they had just seen off a Saudi prince in Malaysia too when I arrived there. Right. They still had the billboards up there and that sort of stuff, welcoming him here and that sort of thing. And Alison said that he had arrived also with a thousand people. Right, right. So um, uh, this particular report from the Sydney Morning Herald says that the investment last year was, uh, this is by Saudi Arabia in Indonesia, was 900000 US dollars. And now that has increased to $7 billion US dollars. With Indonesia media reporting that another US $25 billion may be waiting in the wings. This is from the Sydney Morning Herald. So... Saudi Arabia. Just these are incredible numbers, Scott. Meanwhile, we've been giving them six hundred and five million. So, as opposed to the seven billion that they're going to be getting. Yeah, I mean, where's that seven billion going? Is it going into education or what? You know, because. You know, when you go down further, the education... Well, Saudi Arabia has long-funded educational grants to Indonesian students. Currently, there is only one Saudi-funded tertiary institution. And then it goes on later on. It says that, you know, they have got separate... Well, there's going to be three more. Um, uh, well, they've, they've said that mm. the practice of separating men and women in the context of studying at university means that the same lecture is repeated in a completely different room. Mm. You know, it's... <clears throat> This is the I'm problem. Is, is poor people in Indonesia who cannot afford to send their kids to school will be offered exactly. a free placement mm. in a Saudi madrasa. Mm. Madras, madrasa, and um, and a free education and a belly full of food, like 
they, no matter how much they despise the religion, they'll be very, very tempted to do it because they don't have any other options. But you'll have the kids learning only how to read and write in Arabic. You know, they, they won't have any... It's, you know, it's like my brother. He's um, married to a Thai and he's was telling me about the um, Muslims in the south of the country. Mm-hmm. And he said that they go to Islamic schools where they are taught everything in Arabic. Mm. When they come out, so they go to employers and that sort of stuff and they don't get a job because they can't get because they can't read and write in the local Thai language. They can only read and write in, in Arabic. Right. And um, then they sit there and say, you're not giving me a job because I'm a Muslim. Well, no, it's not because you're a Muslim. It's because you can't speak the language, you know. Mm. You can't read and write the language. It's... Mm. It really is quite infuriating that, um, you know, the madrasas and that sort of stuff, they're being singled out as a, I don't know what they're being singled out for, but they're being used and abused in that way to help divide the communities. Yeah. It's just so well acknowledged that the brand of Islam that Saudi Arabia promotes is, is not one friendly to Western liberal democracies. And no, we should not. Be, I don't know what we're allowing them to do here, uh, but we should be not allowing them here, and we should be discouraging it wherever it's happening, particularly exactly. in Indonesia, if we can. But yeah. when you're faced with that sort of money, uh, all of our special pleadings in the world are going to go nowhere. So that well, is it, a worrying it, development. Well, seven billion dollars is growing from nine hundred thousand dollars to seven billion dollars in one year. Mm. And then it's going up to $25 billion. That's a massive amount of money, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's one to keep an eye on. Um, Scott, uh, article titled, well, two articles that are related to each other. Um, why you think you're right even when you're wrong. And we'll start with this one, the depressing psychological theory that explains Washington. Did I give you that one? I might not you did you give that. it to okay. me, that one, yeah. Okay. So... Um, Oh. It basically goes into the whole uh, identity politics, doesn't it? It does. And the way people are so keen to think along the lines of whatever group they've aligned with. Mm. So, um, so what we had here is, by way of background, a guy called Myerson published an article in Rolling Stone five economic reforms millennials should be fighting for. And uh, the five things he listed were um, efforts to do away with unemployment um, and then in relation to jobs, landlords, private capital ownership and Wall Street. So the last four uh, were things that made conservatives' heads explode. (laughs) but the, the sort of the policies when you actually looked at them weren't that radical. Um, his agenda at its core called for work guarantee, a basic minimum income, a land value tax, a sovereign wealth fund, and a public banking option. And uh, as noted by this guy, Dylan Matthews, all of those policies uh, that Republicans were labelling as socialism have actually been endorsed by major conservatives. So on the face of them, they looked anti-conservative. When you actually read the detail, a lot of the stuff was stuff that conservatives have actually been in favour of. So what this guy did was he rewrote the article from the conservative point of view and said that these were policies that the conservatives were in favour of. So rewriting it and saying that the conservatives were in favour of these policies, all of a sudden... The Conservatives liked the article and the Liberals, well, they didn't like the article. Mm. So um, the policies, exactly the same. Simply rephrasing the article to say, well, this is one that the Republicans are in favour of, is enough for Republicans to say, okay, I'm in favour of it too. Exactly, yeah. Um, So uh, two articles, both advocating the same policies, one of them thrilled liberals and infuriated conservatives. The other infuriated liberals and thrilled conservatives. So if you're able to attach things or say that your group is for something, then your group members will swallow it and they won't 
care what the detail is. They'll just accept it. And mm. um, uh, so what this is saying that often, oftentimes when we think we're engaged in reasoned policy discussion, we're actually engaged in complex efforts to rationalise the direction in which our tribal affiliations are pushing us. So when faced with those bunch of policies, if you're a conservative, you will be in your head rationalising, and then you're told that conservatives like those policies, then you'll be rationalising in your head as to why you should like them, uh, is what he's saying. So um, another study done by a Jeffrey Cohen, professor of psychology at Stanford. He produced multiple versions of a welfare articles. Some students read about a program that was extremely generous, more generous, in fact, than any welfare policy that has ever existed in the United States, while others were presented with a very stingy proposal. But there was a twist. Some versions of the article about the generous proposal portrayed it as being endorsed by the Republican Party. Some versions about the meagre program were described as having Democrat support. The results showed that for both liberal and conservative participants, uh, the effect of a reference group, meaning being told which party was in favour of it, uh, overrode the information of policy content. If their party endorsed it, Liberals supported even a harsh welfare program. And if Conservatives supported even a lavish one, just depending on whether their party... It just gives you no hope, Scott. It really doesn't, does it? The merits of cases don't matter anymore. And, you know, after I read that, I thought to myself, how do I see things? Because I'd always Mm -hmm. thought to myself that I've been pretty even-handed with my review of uh, entitlements and all that sort of stuff. Mm. And I think I have been, but it did make me question my own uh, judgment. You know, it, it did make me think to myself, have I actually been fair and reasonable with every proposal that's been put in front of me? Mm. Yes. Um, so this, uh, a bit further on, um, uh Uh, Once group loyalties are engaged, you can't change people's minds by utterly refuting their arguments. Thinking is mostly just rationalisation, mostly just a search for supporting evidence. This is depressing, Scott. It is depressing, yeah. cases just don't seem to matter. No. Once group loyalties are engaged. It really does make you think, doesn't it? It really does does make you think have we got the right decision here but anyway it's um so yeah. studies are done showing that and an article that is related to that why you think you're right even when you're wrong talks about two different sort of states of mind where you can either be a soldier or a scout so if you're a soldier on the battlefield you're just at a heightened state where you need to protect yourself and your side and defeat the enemy. Mm. So that's a soldier state. And at that point, truth doesn't really matter to you. You're you're surviving for your your team. Um, The other role in in an army or battle is the scout. So the scout really wants to know what's out there as accurately as possible. And too often we are in a soldier mentality where it's like, well, our team's under attack. Yes, we've got to shoot back, yeah. Justify our team's position. Mm. And we need to be more of a scout mentality where we're just looking around and going, well, what is really going on out there? You know, is that, you know, a battalion over there hiding behind those bushes? Or is, you know, is that river, how deep is it? Can people cross it? Like just an inquiring mind that is just trying to get the truth of an issue so soldier mentality versus a scout mentality um the other term that comes up is uh motivated motivated reasoning and the example given is um um if you follow sport when the referee judges your team has committed a foul for example you're probably highly motivated to find reasons why he's wrong (laughs) 
<laughs> but if he judges that the other team committed a foul, then that's a good call. Dear listener, I play competitive squash every Thursday night, and I can tell you that that is exactly what happens so often. <laughs> people see things through the prism of their own self-interest so much. It's and but we don't, you know, recognise that we do that so much in the world of sort of topics we talk about, Scott, and policy Ooh. and what's going on in the world. But if people jump onto a, a part of a side, then they'll just rationalise whatever their side has decided. Um, it's frightening. Exactly. And that, I think, is, that is, I think, uh, a lot what's going on with the uh, Facebook comments and that sort of stuff. It is people just thinking to themselves, well, this would irritate my side, therefore I have to be on it. You know, mm. it's... Uh... Yep. So the key thing for us is to try and have a scout mindset. Um, if we really want to improve our judgment as individuals and as society, what well, what we need most, now this is interesting, is not more instruction in logic, rhetoric, probability or economics, even though those things are valuable. Um, what we need to use um, these principles well is scout mindset. So. Uh, from the secular party, Joe is often talking about critical thinking and the need for logic and uh, rhetoric and probability, etc. Um, and he's right, but what this article is saying that without addressing the mindset of people, you're going to get nowhere because Ooh. even the most logical people are just going to use that logic as a means of rationalising the position that their group has decided to take. Yeah. Mm, so we're going to get people to step outside their their group loyalty positions. That's going to be tough. Doesn't, the article doesn't say how to do that, but that's no. Yeah, that's what we're going to do. Oh, Scott, um, uh, I follow a website called the Batuta Advocate. Have you ever followed the Batuta Advocate? No, Just comes up I with fake fun fun fake stories, satirical yeah. things. I like this one, uh, titled, Bloke Enjoying the Death of Society, <laughs> One Married at First Sight Episode at a Time. <laughs> Finding himself chomping at the bit to get home from work each night, 58-year-old North Batuta man has revealed his love of watching society decay before his eyes as he watches Married at First Sight. You can't believe the fact that we as a nation have descended so far into the cultural portaloo that a television drama such as this is even considered. <laughs> and this is the part why I'm reading it. We go around teaching kids to put such a high value on marriage, such a high value that the shirtlifters and gender benders can't even do it. And then we go and put something like this on television. You know what? <laughs> that just about do me. I'm buying Star for the footy, cricket and Sky News. <laughs> He's right. Like, um, where is Lyle Shelton? Exactly. Married at first sight. Exactly. Married at first sight. It should be Lyle Shelton should be attacking that on a daily basis, but he's not. It's doing far more damage to the institution of marriage than any possibility of a gay marriage. Exactly. Reform would do. Ah. Come on, Lyle, lift your game. Exactly. I want to see yeah. the press release. You can do it. Yeah. A couple of little things to wrap up, Scott. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses were before the Royal Commission on Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. And. Um, they, yeah, I can't believe that they have such a demand for witnesses. Mm. So, dear listener, uh, Timothy chapter 5, verse 19, demands followers, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. And you'd be familiar with this one, Scott, because it's from Matthew. Uh, <laughs> Matthew chapter 18, verse 16, uh, that reads, among other things, at the mouth of two or three witnesses, every matter may be established. And because of that, dear listener, the Jehovah's <laughs> Witnesses take the view that if a child is alleging child sexual abuse, then they need at least two witnesses. 
to confirm their story, otherwise nothing happens. It's clearly a complete misunderstanding about how the thing works. I mean, they obviously have no clue. At well, that's a perfectly just the whole... interpretation of the Bible. Oh, it's an interpretation of the Bible, yes, but then to put that onto... I mean, it's here in the opening line. Child sexual assault is a secret crime created out by men and women who do everything they can to avoid detection. So they're not going to do it in front of witnesses, are they? Correct. You know, (laughs) the J-dubs have gone right down in my estimation. I mean, they were never particularly high anyway, but they've gone very much further down now. Yeah, no, they were never high in my... They're they're subterranean in... Um, at my level so so in front of the commission um, they were sort of questioned about this um, uh, and so this is one of the prosecutors to one of the leaders and saying and your response is that the two witness rule is required by the scriptures and can't be changed or avoided he asked and the response was that's correct that's our stand despicable so let's just give it this is group. it is it is it is despicable, isn't it? There's no other word for it. So let's just give this group special uh, tax exemptions and yeah. all the rest of it um, that we would give to other worthwhile bodies. I mean, you know, they can be on a witness stand and come out with this abominable Dribble. stuff, yeah. and we're still going to give them special privileges. Yeah. Scott. Hmm. Africa is just a refugee-generating machine, isn't it? It is, yeah. We've got the South Sudan famine happening as we speak, dear listener. Uh, the UN, uh, the UN's most senior official for humanitarian affairs, has proclaimed it the largest humanitarian crisis since 1945. Uh, we've got five million people suffering from extreme hunger in South Sudan. And uh, guess what? There's a conflict. doesn't mm. necessarily seem to be religious in this case, Scott. It seems to be along ethnic lines. Mm. We've got one leader, Macha, who is a newer, and we've got Kier, who is a dinka, and they're mobilising their respective tribes, and it just sounds like Rwanda all over again, doesn't it? Well, they haven't quite committed the massacre yet but you've just got ethnic tribes who hate each other and the country is completely dysfunctional and these guys are just roaming the countryside with weapons and they're familiar with violence what we can't do anything with this we could take 20 million refugees there'll be another 25 in in another generation it just completely it just keeps happening Scott I think we need something there needs to be something, an incentive for some other countries to take control and take the risk of of helping out in these cases. Like, they need to be able to say to somebody like Canada, you know, you can have the South Sudan if you want it. Um, you'll have to meet these particular goals and achieve these targets. And if you do that, then it's your territory. You can have it. Like, that's... Mm. Why else would what you're do it? saying is that it's uh, is you're uh, you're declaring your hand as saying that we should reverse the decolonization of the of the African continent well, yeah. well, <laughs> with with permission of the yes with permission of the UN where we say you've got something completely dysfunctional happening here there's no end in sight it's just going to keep going on look it's just off the top of my head so I'm I'm to be persuaded to another idea but. How's that for starters, anyway? Like, at some point... Well, I've often said, Hmm. and this is just privately between me and the better half, but anyway, I've often said that they should divide the entire continent into four spheres of influence. One for Europe, one for the United States, one for China, and one for Russia. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And divvy it up four ways... And you give them a, you give them mandate. You say you've got this for a hundred years. You can tax it the way ever you want to, and that sort of stuff. But at the end of that hundred years, you have to withdraw and leave a peaceful country behind you. 
Well, hang on, Scott. You can't divide. I mean, there's some functioning countries in there. Like, I'm talking about we could pick some countries that are completely dysfunctional. Well, that's And we true, could yeah. say, you know, the UN, you know, this is what... It's, it's never going to happen because you would need the UN to agree on something. But, mm. um, but where we just say, you know what? There is no functional government here. And for somebody to actually come in and fix it up is a high-risk venture. You're going to have to offer something in return. So... You know, if they've got some wealth of some sort under some supervision where they can't just rape and pillage and then leave them in a worse state than they found them. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it's a crazy idea, I admit. It, it needs work. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a crazy idea, but it's got to be worth looking into, doesn't it? You know, it's it's a mess, you know. Mm. Even South Africa, that's not falling apart. Well, it is falling apart, but it's taking forever to do it. That's a mess. You know, it's it's really quite tragic, actually. The whole whole continent should be the wealthiest continent on earth. Mm. Scott, I have just finished a book called Against Empathy by Paul Bloom. Yeah. And this book, um, he makes an interesting case. So empathy, um, uh, as in feeling what you think others are feeling. So that's an emotional empathy, which is different to simply being compassionate, which is a cognitive empathy. But an emotional empathy where, you know, there are people being held on Nauru in terrible situation and you actually feel, you put yourself in their position and you are feeling their pain. So that's an emotional empathy as in, Separate to one where you are, gee, I wouldn't like to be in that position. I'm sympathetic to their plight. That's pretty bad. That's a a cognitive empathy. So he makes a case where a lot of people actually um, use the first rather than the second, and it's dangerous. And, you know, for example, if you're dealing with a doctor, you've got a doctor who's dealing with people in need, they can't get too emotionally attached and get too empathetic with what's going on because they'll take on too much and actually won't be able to help as well as if they can provide some impartiality. So that's sort of one example. But the book goes through a whole lot of things where they've done studies of people who are encouraged to take an empathetic emotionally empathetic feeling towards a situation and then get their responses as to what they would do and people behave quite irrationally as a result so i'm going to talk about that uh in a future podcast but one thing which is kind of totally unrelated to it but i thought it was interesting was um uh we pe- we think people are rational but we overestimate them sometimes uh did you know about this? In the 1980s, there was a restaurant chain called A&W who wanted to create a burger that would compete with McDonald's popular Quarter Pounder. You familiar with the Quarter Pounder, Scott? Yeah, I know the Quarter Pounder, yeah. So they created the Third Pounder, which had more beef, was less expensive, and did better in blind taste tests. It was a failure. <laughs> the reason is, focus groups found that the name was the problem. Customers believed that they were being overcharged, assuming that a third of a pound of a beef was less than a quarter of a pound of beef, since the three in one third is smaller than the four in one quarter. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, Scott. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Scott, we will sign off for uh, episode 88. Uh, Dear listener... Uh, I can see episode 100 on the horizon. It is coming down fairly quickly, isn't mm. it? Yeah. We'll have to do something very special well, for weeks that. weeks away. Yes. Mm. Uh, so that will be uh, coming up. If you've got ideas, let us know. I think we might be interviewing some more people in the future. I'd like to interview some... Well, you know, Scott, like we've talked in this episode about how you can have motivated reasoning and the two of us think along the same line so we can just affirm each other's beliefs but we really mm. do need to get some people who have who are on the other side and um and then sort of argue more with people who have got a completely different view so i need to find some more people on various topics to argue with so that's one of the, one of the new year's resolutions as we head towards episode 100 scott so yeah yeah 
All right, dear listener, thank very you good. Thank for you very much. joining us. We will be with you next week. Bye for now. Bye now. Cheers. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said and when you're talking to your friends say hey I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to and maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out the other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just It'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event... You can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.